As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best and economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, we are going to go to Brussels. He is not only a foreign minister for Ukraine, but from a family of public service to Ukraine. His father was ambassador, including a long tour of duty to Kazakhstan. Maria Tadeo with Mr. Kaleba in Brussels. Maria, good morning. Yes, Tom, good morning. And we're now joined by Dmitry Kuleba, who, of course, uh, is Ukraine's foreign minister. And when this war started, you, alongside the rest of the Ukrainian government, you made the decision of we're not going to leave. We're going to fight for our country and we're going to win this war. I wonder, now you've been on a almost a global tour. You've met pretty much with everyone uh, that can support your cause. What is the message that you're sending diplomats when you go on this tour? Uh, you did not believe in Ukraine. But you, now you can see that Ukraine will win this war. Stand by us and share the victory with us for the sake of the world. Because this is not only Russia's war against Ukraine. This is the threat that Russia and the challenge that Russia poses to the entire world. We have to stop them here in order for others not to suffer as much as we do. And one of the things that you say and President Zelensky repeats too is that when you look at the strategic options right now, the only strategic option that works for Ukraine is winning, is, is a victory. Nothing else will suffice. When you say we've got to win, what does it mean in real terms? Well, uh, you have to understand that this is the war for our existence because President Putin does not recognize our identity. He does not recognize the right of Ukrainian state to exist. This is why we understand that we have no other choice but to win this war because it's a war for our existence. And winning it means first deoccupying our territories, restoring territorial integrity of Ukraine within its internationally recognized borders. We have no intention to capture anyone's piece of land, even an inch of it. We, but we want everything that belongs to us to be ours. And of course, you often hear, I know this really makes you angry and infuriates Ukrainians when you hear things like, oh, but they should just accept a ceasefire or perhaps just give away the Donbass and this will put an end to it. What is the flaw in that theory, according to you? Uh, one of the reasons why this war is happening is because since 2014, some Western countries 
Who, what countries? You say some Western countries. Which uh, you mean Germany? Germany, France, uh, to some extent, the United States, and other 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 European countries. They were always pursuing the policy of half measures towards towards Russia. Because you're scared of Putin. Well, you know, every country is special. Every country has its own reasons to pursue one policy or or another. But um, one of the reasons why this war is happening, it's because. Everyone was always telling us, Ukraine, you have to concede on this to pacify Putin. You have to concede on that to prevent the war from happening. Now, this war happened. It means only one thing, that this entire policy, Ukraine has to concede on something, failed. It doesn't work this way. So instead of asking what Ukraine should do for a ceasefire uh, for the end of the war, the question should be addressed to Russia, what Russia should do. And I would like to commend now both Germany, France, the United States for really changing their perspective on this. Uh, we still have some discussions, but in principle, they clearly understand that this is a black and white situation and it's Russia who bears full responsibility for what is happening. And Mr. Kuleba, you mentioned the French, and I have to ask you about this because over the past 48 hours, there's been a huge debate as to whether or not Emmanuel Macron perhaps suggested to Mr. Zelensky that he should give away some land in order to get a peace deal. Then, of course, the French denied this. What's going on here? Has anyone ever told you, and when I say anyone, of course, I mean global leaders, just give away Crimea, give away something in the East? Have you been pressured to do that? Uh, I was not present in the conversation that my president referred to in the conversation with President Macron, so I cannot uh, comment uh, uh, on this. But uh, before 2014, before the thousand, uh, sorry, before 24th of February this year, when the war started, uh, yes, there was some. They were not pushing, but they were kind of exploring the option of uh, what could be the solution. Uh, what could Ukraine um, abandon in order to uh, make a deal with Russia? But. It, it, I want to make it clear, and I think it's everyone who is watching news from Ukraine and sees Russian soldiers uh, committing atrocities, Russian army destroying our cities, it's not Ukraine to blame. This is an unprovoked war. Not, neither Ukraine, nor Europe, nor NATO, nor the, nor the United States provoked Putin to do what he is doing. And therefore, he must bear full responsibility for that. And you know, looking for um, uh, face-saving options for Putin is a simply false approach. Let Putin himself find a face-saving option for, for him. And sir, I have to ask you, of course, about NATO. Over the weekend, we had Finland, Sweden applying for this. We've heard a lot of people saying, yeah, we welcome them. I'm guessing for you it's a bitter moment because you tried that path to, and you didn't get the welcome uh, you were expecting. I hope, uh, or I wonder, are you disappointed? Are you sad by that? And when it comes to the European Union, which we have here in the background, I mean, is this your best hope now? Is it the EU? You've given up on NATO. I, I, f I believe Ukraine is the best hope of the European Union because look how the European Union changed in the last two and a half months. In the beginning of the war, the perception was that NATO is strong and NATO can act and NATO can deliver. And the only thing EU can do is to express different levels of concern in public statements. And the war proved that everything is completely different. It's NATO that as alliance, as an institution, can do very little, if anything. Mm. Allies, yes, they are very helpful. The coalition of the willing, the coalition of the willing, who represent part of the alliance, they are very helpful. We will never forget how much how they support us. But NATO as an alliance did nothing. 
uh, EU sanctions, strong political statements, economic support, uh, military uh, financing, military support to Ukraine. European Union is back on track as a driving force, mm -hmm. as someone who shapes the future, who can shape the future of Europe. And it's Ukraine who gave them the chance to demonstrate that they can. And you make that very clear. Mitro Kuleva, thank you very much. I know you're heading to The Hague uh, tomorrow, so too. I know you told me you want to pursue this case of criminal charges against uh, Russia and the Russian army. Thank you so much for your time, and we appreciate it. It's such an important hour for your country. The pleasure Thanks. is mine. Thank you. Jonathan. Maria, thank you. A wonderful interview with the Ukrainian foreign minister. Now... To get out front of a sacred oath, Mark Esper, you know him as a Secretary of Defense of modest controversy for President Trump, but far more the most coveted award at West Point. There is a statue at West Point, and far more the heritage is seen in the Thayer Hotel of one Douglas MacArthur. And when you win the Leadership Award at West Point in honor of General MacArthur, it's a big deal. One of those winners, Mark Esper, joined us. Winner maybe doesn't do it justice. Mark, tell me about what General MacArthur would do today with all of his controversy within the Republican Party, the middle 20th century, isolationism and that. What would General MacArthur do with this modern defense department that we have? Well, it's a great question. And I, I guess thank you up front for the introduction, Tom. You know, I, I, MacArthur, what we would consider him today to be a combatant commander, right, because of his command in the Pacific and later during the Korean War. But, you know, for West Point, uh, West Pointers and, and others in the military were, were most uh, recall his famous saying about duty, honor and country. And that is the West Point motto. And he says those three hallowed words reverently dictate what you ought to be, what you can be and what you will be. And it was that phrase and that saying, as it goes, is what in some ways guided me during my tenure, both as Secretary of the Army and Secretary of Defense. I, I am fascinated by your thoughts of the, and this is a very sophisticated word, sir. I don't know if you saw this at West Point. The ginormous NATO exercises going on right now from Estonia and Lithuania on down. This is a new world we are in. Is our Defense Department ready with Secretary Austin for this new world? We are getting ready. Uh, I think a hallmark of the Trump administration was we advanced a national defense strategy that I made number one, my top priority to implement. But this defense strategy also described a, a new era of great power competition defined as China as our top strategic adversary and secondly as Russia. And to confront these two countries, particularly China, we really need to modernize the military from the equipment to our training to our doctrine. And all those things are underway. So it's important that the Pentagon continue on with what we developed uh, during my tenure and that we also provide the funding. That's really, you, you can't do it without having funding. And I've been disappointed by uh, the White House's, the Biden administration's uh, funding requests these first two times. They've been flat. And thankfully, the Congress increased the spending. And that's going to be critical to driving change and modernizing the armed forces. Secretary Esper, based on what we've seen with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, how should the U.S. military view what to expect with Xi Jinping and Taiwan, especially as he does seek yet another term? Yeah, look, it's, it's the great question. Russia, we always define as a superpower, but a declining power. And it's been evident from their actions the last 90 days in, uh, in Ukraine that they're not quite the power that we thought they were in terms of military capability. So this has been a strategic failure across the board. Russia. But China is very different, right? It's, a, it's an economy of $16 trillion, 
second largest in the world, 10 times bigger than Russia, uh, economic inter interdependencies that uh, that run around the world. We're, we're seeing just because of the sh shutdowns uh, due to COVID in <clears throat> Shanghai and other places, how the supply lines reach. So we need to be very careful about uh, how we plan and prepare to deal with China. We need to send the same and the proper signals of resolve and determination to defend young democracies or democracies like Taiwan and make sure they understand that we're going to def defend this world order, these yeah. sets of norms and values that have really helped uh, promote prosperity and, and freedom around the world for the last 75 years. Secretary Esper, the Trump administration was known for looking inward to being uh, very nationalistic in the approach to geopolitical concerns. And we're at a moment where NATO seems to be coalescing in order to deal with Russia and the invasion in Ukraine. How much should the U.S. military and beyond sort of build on this coalescing of NATO and work with allies in order to get uh, some sort of bigger presence, whether it's in Asia or at least to figure out how to respond if there is an invasion of Taiwan? Yeah, look, we absolutely have to. I consider myself a Reagan Republican. Uh, Ronald Reagan promoted American strength, peace through strength. He believed in the defense of democracies and, and the world order as we understand it and believed that we should stand up for our friends and allies. And I made it an important <coughs> plank of my tenure to really go, go out there and try and strengthen our allies and grow new partners. Uh, and I'm a big believer in NATO, and uh, having served in NATO as a young Army uh, infantry officer, I believe that we need to continue to do this. And it's, I'm glad to see, uh, finally, that NATO is coming together. More countries are willing to commit more for defense, and, uh, and that we have possibly, hopefully, new, two new countries joining. And, you know, ironically, it's Vladimir Putin who brought the alliance together. So uh, the, the key thing will be sustaining this momentum as we, at some point, look eastward toward China. Mark Esper, uh, the nation was fractured off of Vietnam. Republicans fractured, Democrats fractured. It was equal opportunity. But we're still adjusting. And now, as Robert Gates would say, from our, uh, our, our holiday from history, we're still adjusting to the debris of Vietnam. Are we adjusting in real time? And how do Republicans and Democrats come together to help those with a sacred oath? You know, you're, you're right. I mean, after the Vietnam War, it took the Army 12, 15 years uh, when I entered active duty in 1986 to really rebuild under, again, President Reagan. And I think now we're coming off the wars the last 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and again, during our time, 2018 and beyond, we began rebuilding the Army and all the services. So it will take time and money. But look, I've said uh, on many occasions here the last couple months or so that the, the greatest threat I see facing our country is the extreme uh, partisanship on both sides of the aisle that is creating dysfunction in Washington, D.C. And then until we solve that problem, it's going to be hard to challenge to take on the big issues such as, you know, our growing uh, budget debt. It's what, $30 trillion? Uh, how do we come up with a, a consensus that uh, with regard to a strategy toward China? How do we address all these big issues facing our country? And that's going to be key going forward. Well, going forward is what we wanted to accomplish here. Mark Esper with an important book. For those of you on radio, you just need to know there's a certain weight to it, like 600-plus uh, pages. Mark Esper, a sacred uh, oath, really can't say enough. And, of course, he leads front and center with a gentleman that he worked for uh, at uh, the White House. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio.
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Long ago and far away, before the advent of financial media, there was actually an understanding that bonds were not just full faith and credit, or FF and C. The financial media only quotes full faith and credit. Thank you, Lisa Abramowitz, who's made a career of looking at credit and high yield. So, too, Amanda Lynham joining us, global credit strategist at Goldman Sachs right now. In the old days, you had a blue book, a Standard & Poor's blue book, and you thumbed through it, and you looked at corporate bonds. And to say, Dan Fuss, the giant at Luma Sales has said, you can enjoy losing money at corporate bonds. How much are we losing right now with the aggregate index down 10% plus? Yeah, good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how both IG and high yield total returns were off to their worst start on record. So it's been a very, very painful year. I think the key risk for bond investors, in our view, is that that's been entirely driven almost by the rates component and spreads have held in very well. So in the event that we do get a recession, which is not our economist-based case, but if we did get one, there's a lot more room for spreads to widen and kind of even exacerbate those losses that we've already recorded year to date. And so that is that is one of the key risks to to the market. What a, what an IG investment grade, old style bonds. I want to buy a General Motors bond. It's a part of the aggregate index. What do you do where equity people say, I'm going to go to cash? Or, you know, I think there's a there's a dialogue about what equity people do. What do bond people do when they, quote unquote, want to go to cash? Yeah, they, they often move up in quality or shorten duration. But one of the risks that we've highlighted in our recent research is that actually moving too far up the quality spectrum in IG also has its risks because those are the companies that are likely to move ahead with, say, debt funded M&A or aggressive shareholder returns, irrespective of the slowing economy. And so we actually like within IG that sweet spot of triple B rated firms. Those are companies that we believe are committed to staying investment grade, but are likely going to behave in a more conservative fashion relative to, say, their highly rated peers, cash rich pharma and tech companies, for example, that will do M&A regardless of the backdrop. Amanda, where are we in terms of what we're pricing into the credit market right now? Initially, you talk about the worst start of the year ever. That was largely due to rates. That was not due to the extra cushion of yields that accounts for potential defaults. Now we're shifting into something else where you're starting to see that widen out. How far in that process are we? That's right. Um, so we have not priced in a lot of default risk and specifically kind of zooming in on the high yield market. And we do think that that's probably appropriate at this stage. So just to set the backdrop, our economists are not expecting a recession as their base case this year. And what we've said is that even if we do have a downturn and growth slows substantially, the high yield market is unlikely to experience the uptick in defaults that we're kind of used to seeing in previous cycles. There are a few 
few reasons for that. One is just we didn't have a, a default cycle that long ago, right? So in 2020, we had a lot of the weaker firms cleaned out of the high yield market. Um, energy and metals and mining and kind of natural resources are also in a much better position now relative to previous cycles. And those are historically the vulnerable sectors. And, and then also we have a lot of cash on hand and balance sheets are very strong. So um, to answer your question specifically, we're, we're not baking in a lot of default risk in the high yield market right now based on current spreads of 450. Uh, but that's that's probably not inappropriate given the, the I would say the higher quality and the increased strength of the high yield market moving Amanda, forward. a lot of people would agree with you. And we see this note after note. Basically, even if we get a recession, things don't have to get that bad in credit because people have pushed out their maturity so far because there was this washout. What does that mean in terms of how high the Fed can go with the Fed funds rate before we have a real problem in credit, which is really the market that the Fed watches and potentially would respond to, not equities having a bad day. Right, exactly. Uh, so our economists expect a terminal value of three to three and a quarter percent. A large amount of that is already reflected in Fed fund futures, for example, and, and baked into the market. Um, I think there's a lot of room to go um, for financial conditions to to tighten and, and really for the Fed to deliver on the hikes that are already priced in to the market. And I think credit investors are expecting that. Um, really, the key risk for credit is if we had a freezing up of the primary market activity such that corporates if they wanted to access the debt markets, could not. Uh, right now, we're, we're actually saying that a lot of the muted supply volumes are due to an unwillingness to access the market on the on the side of corporates as opposed to an inability. And it goes back to exactly what you mentioned. Corporates have the luxury of being patient. They spent most of 2020 and 2021 raising cash, pre-funding years in advance. And so they're not really at the whim of the market in terms of, of having to execute um, in, in a choppy conditions. I, I know Jonathan talked about this on, on Friday afternoon on his program, but really on those windows of stability, you're seeing a lot of activity. And we think that's indicative of a market that's still remaining open, uh, but yet much more challenging in, in terms of, of timing that appropriately. You have no idea how jealous TK will be. Tom's going to be so jealous that Real Yield got the plug there. Amanda, thank you. Right now, let's move on with this economic analysis of the United States to a more global sense. Off of the Milken Institute meetings, William Lee joins us, their chief economist. Bill Lee, can the markets constrain or restrict the Fed? If we look at the Bloomberg Financial Conditions Index, it's sort of doing its job right now, making financial conditions more restrictive. How will the Fed react to that? Well, right now, the markets are doing 110% of the Fed's job because the market increases are way above where, as, as John just said, actual increases, but also uh, the expectations of that aggressive policy stance is something that the markets are clearly priced in. And I think it's based on some misguided information. My, my colleague, uh, former colleague, uh, Andrew, uh, is an example of that where he's focused on the aggregate wage price numbers. And I've been looking at the micro wage price numbers. And I really don't see massive signs of a wage price spiral as 1970s style. In fact, most of the wage increases have been going to where the labor shortages are appearing, the low wage workers, the, right. the, the, the younger tenured workers. Billy, you're world famous for this. And it goes into a decile analysis, I would guess. Economists like Citigroup love to aggregate numbers together. What part of that decile analysis matters for Chairman Powell and the view forward? 
Well, Chairman Powell absolutely cares about the aggregate number. But do you see aggregate wage price spiral? Uh, now, granted, the Fed has lost credibility since its meetings. The average uh, inflation rate break-evens that are priced into five-year securities is way above three, three and a half percent. But given that, I think we shouldn't get too carried away with how much the Fed has to tighten. Don't forget, the Fed, for the first time in Fed history, we have two policy tools, the balance sheet and rates. And I think one of the strategies that they haven't talked about enough is using that balance sheet to cool off and target those red hot sectors in real estate and consumer durables by draining the liquidity from there, especially the mortgage backs, and by then easing up on the amount of rate increases they'll need. That This is, again, the first time in history of the Fed with two policy instruments, it may be able to escape crashing the economy to bring inflation down to its target level. And Bill, some of that in the market ended in a bit of a mess in 2018 when they tried to wind down the balance sheet. They're doing this at a much more aggressive level, twice the speed, once they get going. Bill, can you just add a little bit more colour to that? How much they're about to do with the balance sheet and how this is going to work through the economy, through financial conditions? This is one of the great uncharted territory because the Fed has really never done balance sheet before. And as you said, the last time it did it, it did it in a very clumsy way. Right now, it has to be very careful in using that that mortgage-backed securities holdings because that is where the real red-hot sector is, the real estate market. And draining liquidity there is going to be absolutely critical. But now the Treasury runoff is something that will be done on almost autopilot because it has maturity holdings that are so short. But I think the key to, to the Fed's policy stance is how aggressive does it have to be with with rates on top of that. If you, if you really believe that there's a wage price spiral being priced in, then it has to be aggressive, no doubt. But my, my view of the numbers on the labor market is such that, you know, if you're above the median wage uh, or median profile of the median worker, uh, you're not getting the, the 10, 12% wage increases. You're getting barely 2 and 3% for senior managers. So I think the, the Fed has to cool off a bit in terms of worrying so much about that wage price spiral. There really is no sign of it yet taking hold. And I think that's something the Wall Street has missed entirely. Even so, if the Fed is targeting inflation, even if it's not coming from the wage price spiral, there are so many inflationary pressures coming from China, from the supply chain disruptions, which are not necessarily uh, positive for growth, which are not necessarily signs of momentum, but still the Fed has shown a willingness to target demand in order to respond to supply side responses. What's your view on how far they would have to go to normalize the supply and demand side of the equations? Well, that's our, the lesson learned from the 70s. You cannot let prices get out of control. Even though a lot of the inflation is coming from the supply side, the Fed's job is to equilibrate supply and demand. If you can't get supply up, then you certainly have to bring demand down. And the wrong way to do it, though, is through um, uh, hit targeting uh, investment, which is uh, the cost of capital. Right now, I think the, it, the key to inflation in the future is productivity-enhancing investment. That has to be encouraged. And I think the, the Fed, to choke that off, just for the sake of uh, uh, hitting its 2% target in a reasonable amount of time would be a serious mistake because that would cost us in the three to five year horizon in boosting inflation without those productivity enhancing investments. Right now we've got a two year treasury yield at about two and a half percent. The team over at Bank of America, which we'll catch up with John uh, in a little bit here, believe that it will go up to three and a half percent. Do you think that that would be enough to torpedo this economy to actually send the United States into recession? It would be enough if we drain liquidity adequately from the red hot sectors using the balance sheet. It will not be enough by traditional measures. And so so I think that this, as I said, has got to be a time when the Fed can no longer say the balance sheet is the passive tool and the secondary tool. It has to become the primary tool for cooling the economy. And and and, and as far as China's concerned, by the way, uh, the, the real key to watch is whether or not China becomes aggressive 
and takes over uh, more aggressive about Taiwan. Because the lesson learned from Ukraine that shocked the, the leaders over there is that the the world came together and became much more cohesive. That will put a stopper, I think, on military incursions into Taiwan, but it won't stop their cyber attacks or political uh, political strategies. So, so there the supply constraint is a real issue because TSMC is global. There is no substitute for advanced chips. Uh, we can find other places to buy, to buy wheat. We can find other places to grow corn, but we cannot find another TSMC. But just quickly, within the Communist Party, do you think that the leader, President Xi, is in a position where he can make a, a step as bold as the one that you just described? Right now, if he gets his third term, the one thing on Xi's mind is that he will leave the legacy that he created the path of returning Taiwan to China. This is something no one has accomplished, Deng Xiaoping, no one, not even Zhou Enlai or Mao Zedong. And so, so this has been a China obsession for, for decades, ever since China opened. So you betcha he's going to be going after Taiwan. The question is how. And right now, the, the world coming together with, about Ukraine, I think, has put a stopper on any overt military actions. Bill, wonderful to hear from you, sir. As always, Bill Lee there of the Milken Institute. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Let's kick off the program today with Christian Nolting, the chief investment officer at Deutsche Bank Private Bank. Christian, six straight weeks of declines in the equity market in America. Christian, when do you buy this? When do you make a move? Yeah, fortunately, we have been underweight equities. And honestly, we are now thinking also of, of coming back at least to going to a neutral position because we are so seeing so bearish signs in the market. Uh, there's probably no change to zero COVID policy. There's still supply chain issues. So everything is super bearish if you look bull bear index. So I think it's time to go back a little bit to neutral. But very important, it doesn't mean that we are now getting super optimistic, right? The environment is certainly a tough one, to be very honest. Christian, Ben Laidler's out with a note this morning where he basically says a lot of companies didn't get the crisis memo. And you see that with the great separation, which I'm sure you see as well. How does profit matter going forward? Yeah, if you, if you look at the markets and you analyze the market movement of, for example, the S&P or here in Europe, I think what's very interesting in the recent weeks, also including this last six weeks, you've seen that very, very high correlation of indices to real rates. I think that's important. That's the inflation component. <coughs> it has not been so much about the results of the companies. I think that might change down the road. For example, if you have the Q2 earnings season coming in then in July, I think, of course, there will be a lot of focus on 
how much margin pressure was there or is still there because of inflation. So I think there's a change. But if you look recently at markets, this was certainly driven by inflation and, and real rates for that. So Christian, you are underweight equities, but you are starting to get a little bit more constructive, even as you see the prospect for recession continuing to climb over the next 12 months. Can you parse through how you can be bullish on equities heading into a recession? No, I'm not saying I'm bullish on equities, but I'm saying we have been underweight equities, which was certainly right call. And you have even in bear markets, even recessionary markets, we have one of the strongest rallies sometimes in markets. And I think if sentiment is so negative, uh, there is some room even in a recessionary environment for, for some market upside you don't want to miss. But it's not that I'm saying you get overly optimistic, you do know ma- massive overweight in equities. I think that's not the economic environment we are in. And Christian, it sounds like you want to go back to neutral. So let's talk about that. Where would you buy to achieve that? Well, markets which are mostly uh, underweight was the US, was also China, for example, and there's a lot of discussion, uh, of course, on China. I don't see immediate change. Look at the results or the numbers we've seen uh, this morning in China. I've, I've done called uh, colleagues in China. The sentiment is extremely bearish. Um, no change to zero COVID policy. But if you look longer term, right, the market is down more than 35% since the peak. I think if you at least go to a more neutral position, that cannot be wrong if you buy something 35 lower. Not overweight, but go to neutral. I think that's that's the direction we want to go. Christian, wonderful catch-up, sir. As always, Christian Nolting of Deutsche Bank, Private Bank. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.